We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Monday, October 1st, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and... Coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to a Coast Guard veteran who's also a television star and a best-selling author. His name is Mike Cole. You may remember him from a certain show on CBS where, you know, law enforcement and military types tried to track down people who tried to avoid them for as many days as they could. Well, we're going to talk to Mike about that aspect of his career, his time in the Coast Guard, and what he's doing now as a best-selling author in a couple of genres, including the fantasy author, he's got some history books that he's written, and he's got a new book that just came out. We're also going to talk to IAVA about a number of topics, including the latest suicide data, which we've been talking about since it came out last week, and it's, it's troubling. It's troubling in that while the overall suicide numbers have gone down in the veteran community, the rate has actually risen with the younger veterans. Those vets between 24 and 55, their rate is going up. Well, how can the overall numbers be going down, you ask? Well, it's quite simple, really. There were just more people who served during World War II and Korea. Now that there are fewer of them with us each day, that larger veteran community is shrinking. So while the overall numbers going down might seem good, might be the canary in the coal mine for you to, at, at first glance, when you realize that the rate of the post-9-11 veterans and the, the Gulf War I veterans, that rate is going up. That's some disturbing stuff. We're going to talk to IAVA about that and oh so much more on today's show. But first, let's start off by talking about something that everybody does. Literally everybody. There's only a few things that I think you can say each and every one of us does. We are all born, we all die, and in the middle, we will eat, sleep, and drink. Well, if you're eating in the Army, it's about to change. It's about to get a little bit more technologically advanced, and this could be good news or, as we'll talk about here in just a second, might be a bit of a problem. You see, the Army Times is reporting that those paper meal cards that soldiers have been using for decades, generations even, they're on the way out. Yeah, your CAT card, essentially your ID card with the little gold chip on it. You know, the military was actually ahead of the power curve on those chips on ID cards like we have on our credit cards now. That is going to be what you use at your meal as your meal card at every dining facility in the Army, a.k.a. the DFAC. So they're phasing out this manual meal card system, and you're just going to have to swipe your CAT card to get your food. Sounds good, right? Well, Jack Skelly, the chief of the Food and Field Services Branch, Army G4 at the Pentagon, said in a press release, the new system will ultimately speed them through the line at the dining facility. Okay. In theory, that's going to work. In reality, we know that that system is going to go down. We know it's going to go down probably fairly regularly. So what do you do then when there is no backup? That's an interesting question. Of course, you had the issues with the paper meal cards where people would lose them or they'd get destroyed, and you're less likely to lose your ID card than you are a little piece of paper, even a little laminated piece of paper. But 
There was no way that that system could go down. That little paper card was always going to be a little paper card. You were never going to have an issue with it not working because uh, the internet was down or the power was out. And if we know one thing about the Army, and I do know a little bit about the Army. Heck, I got an Army Commendation Medal before I got a Navy Achievement Medal. We know that the Army has some issues with, uh, how should we say, um, going around the rules when necessary. There's that official Army way of doing things. Good morning, Pete. There's that official Army way of doing things. And if that official Army way doesn't work, oh boy, watch out. There are going to be issues. If you can't submit Form D-12-965 to request Form D-12-966, which then allows you to get a meal requisition form, you're going to have those issues. So this is something that, okay, in general, it's going to be fine. And again, you're less likely to lose your ID card than you are that little paper card. We know that. That's a fact. How many times did you lose uh, a ration card while you were stationed overseas? I had a tendency to lose them within a month of getting them. I don't think I ever had one for more than a month, but my ID card, I think I only ever lost one of those while I was in the military, and then it turned up uh, about a week later. I had put it on top of uh, a transmitter and forgotten, and you know, there you go. Had to fill out all sorts of paperwork for that. So again, in theory, this new cat card system at all the defects around the world for the Army is fantastic, and I, I hope that they have a backup for it, but we'll see. Again, technology can be a benefit. It can also be a drawback. We've all seen it before. When the internet goes down on a military installation or a U.S. naval vessel or any place, really, work just kind of ceases to be. You can't do much of anything when that happens. So what do you do when that's how you get your food? Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting to see. Makes me think back to Afghanistan where, you know, they they would not let people go into the dining facility if they didn't have the right little card, the right little sheet. Now add technology into the mix there. Well, the power is down. Can you prove that you actually have the card on there? No. Well, too bad. No food for you. It'll be very interesting. They have been uh, also testing a food truck program. Still in the pilot stage, but they've been testing it at Fort Stewart down in Georgia, Fort Carson out in Colorado. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Dining facilities, you got the long lines. It can get kind of crazy. And if you don't want to sit down in there, then you got to go through the extra step of getting your to-go box and all that. Well, they're looking at food trucks as a possible, uh, possible remedy to that situation. Speaking of situations that need a remedy, the issue of Okinawa And whether the United States military, in particular the Marine Corps and Navy, stayed there, that's one that's been going on for decades now. Well, a critic of the U.S. military bases, a man who wants them gone. His name is Denny Tamaki, who campaigned, basically focusing on criticizing our military presence on the southwestern Japanese islands of Okinawa, won the election for governor this weekend. Defeated the ruling party-backed candidate who was pushing the status quo, well... That's what this being reported by Marine Times, and this could be an interesting movement there. Again, this has been something they've been talking about for decades. There have been numerous issues that took place out in town. Yes, it's a small majority of the people stationed there, but there have been some truly horrifying events that have taken out in town, taken place out in town. You're talking about uh, rapes that have happened. You're talking about car accidents, deaths, 
just all sorts, all manner of bad things that have happened on Okinawa. And the people there, they're just kind of done with it. And they want the U.S. military gone. They also don't like the noise that comes out of the air station there. They don't like much of anything about the United States Marine Corps and Navy being on Okinawa. And the U.S. military has a plan, but then they've had this plan for quite a while, to move all of those people to Guam. They were talking about it when I was stationed on Guam. I got there in 2009, I guess. When I got there in 2009, it was like the Marines were coming tomorrow. Everybody was always talking about how the Marines were going to be on Guam next week, basically. They're, they're starting to come down. Did you see those Marines out by, uh, out by Anderson Air Force Base? Yeah, they're coming, man. They're coming. Well, here we are. We're now hmm, nine years later, coming up on a decade later. And they finally started building facilities for the Marines to move from Okinawa, Okinawa, <laughs> Okinawa to Guam. So maybe they are moving in that direction, and this might speed things up. Again, Denny Tamaki campaigned on criticizing the American military presence on Okinawa. Marine Corps Times is now reporting that he has won the election for governor, and he will push to get about 27,000 or so American military members stationed there. Uh, Also, here's the thing. Okinawa, okay, big island, right? Not the biggest island in Japan, not by any stretch of the imagination. It's not that huge, but it's big. It's got about half of all of our troops stationed in Japan, and 64% of the land space used by U.S. bases are located on Okinawa. We take up a lot of room there. And again, there have been these issues out in town. There have been criminal issues, civil issues, noise issues. There's been a lot going on. I think this may finally push them towards moving those Marines to other locations. Guam, again, one of the main ones. And uh, I got to witness that, but they didn't really do anything while I was there. It's finally starting to happen as we we near 10 years since I got to Guam. Here's a story that's fascinating in kind of a dark way, but it's got a silver lining. There's a veteran who had a yard sale in western Pennsylvania last month. Why did he have that yard sale? Well, he wanted to raise money, obviously. What did he want to raise that money for? He wanted to pay for his own funeral. He has been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he didn't want to be a burden to anybody there. His name is Willie Davis. He's a Navy vet. He explained to a couple young men who showed up named Ed Sheets and David Dunkelberger, both 27 years old. They went to this yard sale. They started shopping around. They started talking to David, or sorry, they started talking to Willie Davis. And Willie explained, hey, I'm raising money for myself. I don't have too long to live, and I want to pay for my funeral. Yeah. It's a sad story, right? Well, they thought so too, but they did think it was kind of beautiful. This guy knows he doesn't have a lot of time left. He wants to share the stuff that he's gathered over the years with other people while also making sure, again, that he isn't a burden to the people that he knows and loves. So they decided to do one of these crowdfunding things. They set up an account to help cover his funeral costs, and for about a month, they had friends and relatives spreading the word, all that good stuff. New York Times reports that after that month, they had about $475. $475 is a pretty good amount for a yard sale, so I'm sure Willie Davis would have been happy with that. But then, local news outlet in western Pennsylvania, WTAJ, covered the story last week, and things started picking up steam. Donations from across the state, then that story went viral. For all of you who wonder what the good of social media is, 
Here's a great example for you. That story went viral, and by this past Saturday evening, the donations had gone up from that $475 raised by the two gentlemen who had first started it to an excess of $58,000. Mr. Davis has squamous cell carcinoma. It's a form of skin cancer, and it's one that is, in fact, terminal, but now he has the money to pay for that funeral. And it's really, again, kind of a dark story, but it has a little bit of a silver lining. Here's another one. Dark story, silver lining. We've talked about this here on the show before, how across the country there are veterans who pass away whose remains are not collected. Their family doesn't know where they are, they've lost touch with them, or in some cases they don't have any family anymore. Now there are organizations around the country who do uh, essentially take care of them, give them burials, put them where they deserve to be and give them the send-off that they deserve. Well, there was an Army veteran down in South Carolina who died two weeks ago in a homeless shelter, according to WHNS down in South Carolina. They didn't know where his family was. They couldn't find anybody who knew him. Now they have. James Clyde Hutchins Jr. was 56 years old. He passed away September 13th of natural causes. They put it out again over social media. It went viral in that area, and they found out, yeah, he still does have some family left. They didn't know where he was, but now they're able to take care of him and give him, again, the send-off he deserves from his loved ones. Hutchins was born August 1st, 1962, and lived in the Spartanburg, South Carolina area. So he passed away, and they couldn't find anybody related to him. The coroner actually asked for help in finding his relatives. They didn't hear any news for a while. This was September 13th, so you're talking, what, three weeks ago or so. Just this past Friday, it was posted on Facebook by the coroner that Hutchins' family has been located, and now, again, he will get that send-off that he deserves. It might seem surprising to people who have family that they're close with, those who have a large family, that there is someone who can be in that situation, but it absolutely does happen. I mean, obviously, this story is proof of it. But just because someone may not have any family left or they may not be in touch with their family as you know, there are problems that cause separations within families, the fact that people are still out there trying to give those veterans, again, the send-off that they earned, the send-off that they deserved, and just as importantly, still working to find the family, not just saying, hello, Jennifer, how are you doing over in Annapolis today, just down the road? They are not just saying, well, we can't find them. Let's give them, a, you know, give them over to an organization who gives them a military funeral. This coroner could have done that, could have done it and been done with it within a week or so. The coroner kept looking, and they found Mr. Hutchins' family. Again, kind of a heartwarming story out there. Here's another story that's a little bit heartwarming that you can find on ConnectingVets.com, and it focuses on an NFL player. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding the NFL and surrounding the military. Good morning, Jared Lyon. How are you doing today? Student Veterans of America, great organization. Highly recommend you go check them out. Robert Griffin III, former Washington Redskin, current Baltimore Raven. I guess he likes the uh, DMV area. He's stuck around here. RG3 
of course, is best known as a former rookie of the year in the NFL. He's now a, a backup or third-string quarterback up in Baltimore. Went to Baylor University. Before Baylor, how much do you know about Mr. Robert Griffin III? Probably not much. Did you know he was an Army brat? Yeah, he actually was. Our own Phil Briggs was able to talk to RG3 and talk to him about what it was like growing up in the Army particularly for someone who was a star athlete. It can be difficult for those uh, Army brats, Air Force brats, Navy brats, Marine Corps brats, Coast Guard brats, moving every couple of years, not being able to build that sort of, I guess, home structure that it often takes to get to the level of, like, the NFL if you're a great athlete. I mean, if you're stationed over Europe and you're playing at the Department of Defense uh, school system over there, you're probably not going to have too many NFL scouts in attendance unless you are a transcendent player. And to be clear, RG3, particularly in his college years, was a transcendent player. But he talked to Phil Briggs about it was like gr- what it was like growing up in the Army. Both of his parents actually serving in the Army. His mom served for 13 years as a computer engineer. His dad for 21 years, including time as a tank operator. Uh, he decided to stop being a tank operator, RG3 told our Phil Briggs. Once they had his two older sisters and him, uh, he said the life expectancy of those guys was a little short, particularly in wartime. So his father started working with petroleum in the Army. Again, 21 years when he retired from the Army. Not the only one either. We talked to Sean Springs, former NFL Pro Bowler and All-Pro, who's now the CEO of the company Windpact, which is working to de- – it's designed already – but they're working to get it inst- installed and instilled. New helmet technology that makes, uh, what would you say? I guess it makes concussions a little bit less likely, makes traumatic brain injuries a little bit less likely. They're working on adapting and developing that con- that, uh, that that technology even more. And Sean Springs, a lot of people don't know, his mom was in the Army. Yeah, she served in the National Guard. And did you know that the NFL has a lot stronger military ties than just those two? We can go down the line. Roger Staubach, United States Naval Academy quarterback, captain at at Annapolis, then a captain for the Dallas Cowboys, served in the Navy as an officer, didn't quite make it up to captain. He deployed to Vietnam, resigned his commission in 1969, five years after his NFL career ended. He won two Super Bowls in Dallas and shrined in the Hall of Fame. Of course, that is a big one. Here's another big one. This is a name that you know big football fans might know, but some who aren't the biggest fans might not. Now, if you're a fan of the 70s and the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Steel Curtain, you're going to know this guy. Rocky Blyer. He was a fullback. Drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1968. Played one season. Got drafted. Drafted into the United States Army and sent over to Vietnam with the 196th Light Infantry Brigade in May of 69. And this was not an Elvis Presley situation. Remember when Elvis joined the Army, right? Basically went over to give concerts and and do publicity and raise money for the military. No, not Rocky Blyer. Rocky Blyer was not a superstar player by any means. He was a blocking fullback, one of the most inglorious jobs in the NFL to this day. In fact, in the NFL, fullbacks aren't even used by most teams anymore. Rocky Blyer went over to Vietnam. He was the real deal. He was awarded the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star and came back along with those medals with some shrapnel in his right leg. When you're a professional athlete, that can be a bit of a hindrance to your career. Doctors told Rocky Blyer he would never play football again. He said, oh, yeah, watch me. 
went back to the Steelers in 71. He was Franco Harris's blocker, played on four Super Bowl winning teams, and played 10 more seasons. Chuck Bednarik, another member of the Football Hall of Fame, along with Roger Staubach. He was a two-way player for the Eagles from 49 to 62. He also was drafted into the Army at 18 years old and sent to gunnery school in the midst of World War II. He served with the 467th Bomb Group, 8th Air Force, flying 30 missions over Germany in a B-24 Liberator and was decorated with the Air Medal, four Oak Leaf Clusters, and the European-African Middle Eastern Campaign Ribbon with five battle stars. You go back to World War II and you start finding even more of these professional athletes who served. Good morning, Andy. 4.30 a.m. on the West Coast on Facebook Live there, and Andy's up bright and early to check us out. Thank you very much, brother. You know, when you look at professional athletes today, there are a few who play in professional sports league. Alejandro Villanueva plays for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was an Army Ranger. Uh, You also had a guy who was a long snapper, Joe Cardona, for the uh, New England Patriots. I'm not 100% certain if he's still playing for them, but Joe Cardona was working two jobs. He was playing for the New England Patriots and was also on active duty in the United States Navy at the same time. He was a Naval Academy football player, drafted in the fifth round of the 2015 NFL Draft. And what the NFL and Navy were able to work out, or maybe it was the Patriots and the Navy, I'm not 100% certain, he worked with the Patriots six days a week. Then he went to the Naval Academy Prep School down in Newport, Rhode Island, one day a week during the season. And when the campaign comes to a close... He goes down to Hampton Roads and serves on active duty down there. That is crazy. That's something that was a little bit more common back in the day. The military moved away from it, saying, you know, if you played at West Point or Annapolis and you got drafted, you weren't going to be able to play in the NFL until you finished your military career. But then, as recruiting got a little bit more difficult, it was getting harder to keep people uh, from leaving and getting harder to get people to join up in the first place. They started seeing maybe some benefit to allowing their players to go into the NFL and play there. Joe Cardona is an example of that where, again, they worked out a deal. Six days a week, New England Patriot. One day a week, United States Navy Patriot down at Naps in Newport. And then in the offseason for the NFL players where they're all partying, hanging out on the beach and golfing, Joe Cardona was headed down to Hampton Roads to Navy it up. You do have other people that have made a name for themselves in the NFL over the years like Mike Anderson. Mike Anderson was one of those Denver Bronco running backs in the like late 90s, early 2000s, starting with Terrell Davis. Uh, when he retired, you thought, oh, Denver's going to have trouble running the ball. Not so much. They would just find these running backs that nobody had ever heard of. Mike Anderson, nobody had ever heard of Mike. Turned out he had a hell of a story. Mike was a United States Marine, served in the Marine Corps, which meant he didn't enter the NFL until he was 27 years old. 27 years old, he set the NFL's single-game rookie rushing record, going for 251 yards against the New Orleans Saints. That was back in the year 2000. He played seven years in the NFL, five with Denver and two with the Baltimore Ravens. His rookie season, that was his best one. He wasn't a flash in the pan. He played seven years. But his rookie season, 15 rushing touchdowns and 1,487 yards. Perhaps more impressive than any of those numbers, though, are the numbers of the years that he served in the United States Marine Corps. In fact, he didn't even start playing football until he was in the Marine Corps and then based 
on that football career in the Marine Corps, which I didn't even know was really a thing. He got recruited by the University of Utah and ended up going in and playing that way. I mean, it is just crazy to hear about someone doing that. When you were serving or when you were an Army brat, Navy brat, when you were a military spouse, can you imagine moving on to a secondary career in pro sports? It's about all most people could do is imagine it. Yeah, I can imagine being the center fielder for the Mets. And over the last few years, there have been some years where I might have been an improvement over who they had in center field. But these folks actually went through, got the job done, and made it after they served in the military. People like Mike Anderson, people like Chad Hennings, who of course played for the Cowboys, Glenn Coffey. Yeah, Glenn Coffey, running back, picked in the 2009 NFL draft, played one season. Uh, went to the U.S. Army afterwards in 2013. So there's a reverse example of it. It does happen out there. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. I think I'm going to stick with this and not try to go into professional sports anytime soon. And why am I going to stick with this? Oh, because I get to talk to really fascinating people like Mike Cole. Mike Cole is a Coast Guard veteran. He's a TV star. He is a best-selling author. And he's going to join us in just a couple of minutes. And then coming up later on today, we're going to talk to IAVA about a number of topics, including the troubling trends in the newest suicide data from the VA and the troubling fact that it's a few years old. So we don't even have the most recent data, but the most recent that we do have shows some not very good things, including the rate among veterans 24 to 55 is actually going up. We'll be back with Mike Cole later on IAVA. Stay right here. Morning briefing back after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we're doing, and I'll tell you why we're doing it. It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform of our armed forces, and just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off that last time. The struggles, the difficulties, the barriers, the loneliness, everything that comes along with it, we're working to address that through a variety of content available to you at ConnectingVets.com, including video, print articles, audio. You know that. You're listening to this. All of that is available to you there and on our social media pages. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Coast Guard. He's also a very successful author, and we're going to talk to him about his journey right now. Mike Cole, welcome to The Morning Briefing. How are you doing today? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Well, it's absolutely our pleasure. So as I mentioned, you served in the United States Coast Guard. I think of all the branches of the military, we've had the fewest guests come on from the Coast Guard, probably because it's smaller than the other branches of the service, but always a fascinating story that people have of their time in the Coast Guard. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your service, you know, where you're from, when you joined and what you did in the Coast Guard. So uh, my my path to military service is actually backwards. Um, most people start out with uh, with military service and then wind up going into more lucrative roles in government contracting once they get out. And I did it all backwards. I started out uh, becoming a government contractor for a, a PMC, private military contractor, which is, I guess, a, a very nice way of saying mercenary, um, <laughs> right after 9-11 when the government sort of, um, well, I mean, we went kind of crazy after 9-11, right? And we started letting contractors do a lot of things that really are the province of government, military, and intelligence services. So I wound up being a targeting officer, um, what's called an SSOT in the intelligence services, as a contractor and did two tours in Iraq that way. 
And then when I came back from my second tour, I was on the Metro, uh, which is the underground street, and I was wearing an OIF T-shirt, Operation Iraqi Freedom T-shirt. I didn't go into security contracting um, because I wanted to make money. I did it because it was the fastest way to get in the fight after 9-11. You know, anyone who has experience trying to get a federal job knows that it can take you know several years, especially if a security clearance is involved. And some guy stopped me on the train and he goes, uh, hey, man, thanks for your service. And my heart just, you know, swelled. I was so, so gratified that someone congratulated me, you know, thanked me for it. And he asked me what unit I was with. And I said, oh, you know, I was a contractor. And he got a look on his face like he just drank sour milk and was like, oh. Mm. And that just broke my heart, man. It really did. And I went home and I was like, I got to wipe this stain off because, you know, I got to prove to him. To myself that this isn't about money this is about the mission um and so i started immediately looking at services and of course what do you do you, you want to find the most elite the most uh, the smallest the hardest to get into and of course that's marine corps and like most people i thought the coast guard wasn't even the military mm. but once i started doing my research i found out that there was a service that was a smaller than the marine corps b had a smaller budget than the marine corps so they did uh you know they had to do even more with less and uh, C, harder to get into, more elite, because um, A, it's smaller, and uh, B, everybody who wrongly thinks that the Coast Guard isn't really the military and thinks they'll have an easier ride, uh, spoiler, you won't, uh, tries to join up. So uh, that's what got me to, uh, to take my shot. And they brought me on, and uh, I did intelligence. Um, I was in the FIST, the uh, Field Intelligence Support Team, uh, down Sector Hampton Roads in Hampton Roads, Virginia, uh, doing fisheries crime down there. And then um, I was activated for uh, Deepwater Horizon, the big oil spill in the Gulf, uh, did recovery for Hurricane Sandy here in New York, helped evacuate Cape May for Hurricane Irene. And uh, then I also was the CEO of the reserve uh, here at Station New York. So I got to do all of maritime law enforcement patrol around the Bay of New York. And the Coast Guard isn't just law enforcement um, in local waters, we're also sort of like an ambulance service. We do search and rescue or SAR. So I got to do all of that um, here. And the, the funny thing was my third tour in Iraq, which I did for DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, I actually had to take military leave. I take leave from the Coast Guard to go fight in a war uh, over in Iraq. <laughs> but of course, um, anyone who knows um, the reserve know that they're, they're super, uh, super helpful and stuff like that. So they were, they were really supportive. But yeah, my Coast Guard experience was absolutely amazing. And I miss it like a lung. Like I, there isn't a day that goes by, especially now with the Florence hitting the East Coast of the United States, where I, I don't wish I was back in. Is it ever frustrating to you how little people, even those with military experience, seem to know about all of the variety of things that the Coast Guard actually does? Of course, um, and it, what's, but it's not frustrating to me in the sense that you think. What's frustrating to me is that without that kind of public. Um, knowledge and without that kind of public support, it's very easy to slash budgets. And you've seen, anyone who's been watching the news has seen that a tremendous amount of money has been taken from the Coast Guard uh, recently, including um, money taken from the Coast Guard to give to ICE uh, for detentions, this highly, highly controversial detention program. When we have a, a, a Coast Guard here that's really, really well equipped to meet the challenges of the current age, I mean, for example, the Coast Guard uh, through Title 14 and Title 18, blends law enforcement authorities with warfighting authority, which uniquely positions the agency to be a um, really effective player, both in the war on terror and in um, cyber warfare issues uh, and, and cyber crime issues, where 
uh, traditional warfighting agencies really can't do that because they're under Title 10, and that really circumscribes what they're able to do when U.S. citizens are involved. The Coast Guard, largely due to Title 14, has is is one of the most, or if not the most, versatile military uh, agencies in the United States. And when people don't know about that, I'm fine with it. But the only problem is it makes it very, very easy for people to slash their budgets. And then the public doesn't get outraged because the public's just like, well, what, you know, who, who are they, you know, who needs the Coast Guard? Uh, but the reality of it is, is that the Coast Guard does, first of all, we fought in every war uh, there is. And you mentioned just a couple of missions. But when I was over there, we had, you know, Coast Guard intelligence performing important intelligence roles in Iraq. We have a JAG performing legal roles. We have environmental impact teams that are out there. Um, uh, you know, aid missions, you name it. The Coast Guard is an incredibly hardworking and versatile agency. So I, I just wish that we, um, they had a little more visibility so that they could have a little more money. Mike, what do you remember about the time when it came for you to leave the Coast Guard, to basically put that behind you? Uh, it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made. Um, I, uh, look, I didn't do it because I wanted to. I did it because I had a, so many other competing things going on in my life. At the time, I, um, my writing career was really blowing up, and then I got a TV show. Um, I starred on CBS's Hunted, which was a sort of investigative fugitive show where I tracked fugitives across the Southeast U.S. Um, that was, uh, I think that was about a year and a half ago that show aired. And uh, I'll never forget, when you're uh, stationed in New York uh, on the reserve side is the biggest and busiest boat station in the U.S. Coast Guard. I had about 57 sailors uh, who were looking to me to leave them. And one of my sailors needed a job letter, which is a letter that I write to their employer saying, hey, you got to let this person off this weekend when they work weekends to drill. And uh, it's a one paragraph letter. And this guy was a uh, bosun's mate second class and I was a lieutenant. So, you know, stratospheric difference in our ranks. And he finally had to text me and be like, sir, I need that letter. And I'm thinking, man, how scary, scared does a, a petty officer second class have to feel to have to go to his lieutenant and yell at him for not getting him his letter, his job <laughs> letter? That has to really make him uncomfortable. And then I thought, wow, man, you don't have the time. You don't have the time to lead these people effectively. You don't have the time. If you're putting them in the position where they've got to yell at you, come after you to get a letter, you're too busy to do this right. You have to make a choice. You owe them uh, better than that. And so I laid out all of the things in my life and I, I wasn't going to get rid of my writing career and I wasn't going to get rid of my burgeoning TV career. And I'd done a lot of years in the Coast Guard. Um, and so I regret it, you know, really, really reluctantly had to, had to let that go. And it killed me. It still kills me. One of the things I, I loved was every single holiday. Um, look, I'm a single guy. I don't have kids. I'd raise my hand and volunteer, you know, Christmas, New Year's, Halloween, you know, to do those duty patrols so that other other guys could go home and be with their families. And uh, now I can't. And every time those holidays come, I kind of feel like this, I don't know, pang of guilt in the back of my mind that uh, that I'm not able to stay on the watch anymore mm. uh, doing that. Yeah, I just, I just miss it so much. 
Of course, that's that's an interesting thing that some people, you know, their time comes to an end uh, just because they've reached their maximum time in. For uh, some, there are just so many things going on in their life that they need to uh, to focus on, and it just comes time to leave the military. That, of course, was the case with you, a TV show, a successful author. Uh, let's talk about the writing world. How did you first get into writing as far as uh, you're the author of fantasy books, you've got a history book that's out there. When did the writing bug first bite you on that professional level? I, um, well, I mean, I've been writing. I've been writing since I was a kid. I mean, there's it's just something I've always done. I I was the I'm the last person you would think would join the military. I was the classic nerd, playing D and D, reading comic books, um, getting my ass kicked all the way through high school. Uh, you know, I don't think I had a date until I was you know in my junior year, maybe. Um, I uh, I had hair down on the backs of my knees all the way through college. Like I, I you could not have found a person less likely to join the military. And, um, uh, the writing was always a part of it. The, I was always, 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 always the typical nerd. But I think part of it is that I loved fantasy and I loved knights in armor and I loved dungeons and dragons and all of those things, all of those stories revolve around fighting men. They all revolve around, um, the projection of violent power for the force of justice. Um, this is what Wolverine does, right? This is what Batman does. These are people who fight um, for what's right. And when you're an impressionable kid, those things really, you know, dig in and take root. And they never left me. So to me, it's very logical that I would both be a writer and join the military. Um, but I think that everybody in my family and all of my friends were like, you, you did what? <laughs> when it happened. Um <laughs> But yeah, I wrote my entire life. I mean, basically, I and then as I became an adult and I got serious, it began to absorb my nights and weekends and kind of um, I traded a social life for it to a large extent. And I didn't go pro until 2012 when I was in my late 30s. That was when my first novel was published. And uh, since then, I've been producing one to two books a year. Um, You know, I really consider myself very lucky to be able to get it done at a professional level and to have publishing contracts. So I try to make hay while the sun shines. Uh, uh, I, I still spend my nights and weekends. You know, I finish my day job. Uh, I close my laptop and I open my iPad and I, I start on the next book. We're speaking with Mike Cole, Coast Guard veteran, author, TV star, a man of many titles. Of course, there are two titles as of now in the Sacred Throne series, which is your latest. I know book three is coming soon. Book two uh, just coming out this month. What was the start for you? When did you first start getting paid to write and how did that happen? I mean, did they seek you out? Did you have to go hunting for a publisher? How does that work for the uninitiated? So um, it's really, 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 really hard. I, I have to be clear. I, I, it took me 15 years of writing um, uh, night, and nights and weekends of really, I, I wrote, I think, four complete novels before I finally sold one. And I, I did tons of research. I found the agent I wanted to represent me. I legit stalked him at a party. <laughs> um, and then we hung out in the lobby of a, of a hotel room uh, excuse me, of a hotel in Philly until three in the morning with me talking to him about anything but writing, just trying to make friends with the guy. Um, and it, luckily it worked off, but even, uh, uh, but even, uh, worked out. But even after that, um, you know, he still rejected another, you know, two, three manuscripts of mine before I finally gave him something that he could use. Ironically, I gave him my fourth novel, a fifth novel, the novel that would become control point, my first novel that sold, and then I went to Iraq and I told him not to tell me what he thought. 
because I needed my head in the game. And if he liked it, it would, you know, I'd be too jacked up because he liked it. And if he didn't like it, I'd be too bummed because he didn't like it. It turns out he loved it. And he called my friend Pete, uh, Peter V. Brett, who is a super sledgehammer fantasy author. If your um, listeners haven't um, read his Demon Cycle series, The Warded Man is the first one in that. He's amazing. Um, but my agent called him and was like, this book's amazing. I, I, you know, I'm ready to take it to market. And Pete was like, well, don't tell Mike. So I spent four months, uh, my last tour in Iraq, uh, you know, not knowing that, <laughs> that uh, I had a book that my agent was ready to take out. And even then, when he took it to market, it was still a year and a half of it getting rejected by every major publisher um, in the English-speaking language. And finally, Ace Rock um, said they would consider it on a 60% rewrite, Ace Rock being the main fantasy and science fiction imprint of Penguin Random House. And uh, I'll tell you, once I had gotten, after all those years of trying and after getting this superstar agent, my agent represents um, Brandon Sanderson, he, he represents Charlene Harris, the woman whose books became the True Blood series on HBO. So I really had major backing with this guy. And still to be rejected by all those publishers and only have one publisher considered on a 60% rewrite. I can't tell you how depressing that was. I turned into a monster. I was just a miserable human being. Mm. And, uh, but I did it. And uh, amazingly enough, um, that 60% rewrite got me over the hump and, and, uh, and got the book published. But yeah, getting my first book deal um, is one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing I've ever done. And I will also say that each subsequent book deal you, you have to go get Maybe it's a little bit easier than if you've never published before, but not much. I mean, it's unless you are Pat Rothfuss or Brandon Sanderson, one of these writers who, you know, they could publish their grocery list and millions of people are going to buy it. Um, it's always, always, always an uphill struggle. And that kind of not, you know, getting the drama out of the way, getting the woes me out of the way and focusing on the work. That's something I absolutely learned in the United States Coast Guard and I'm incredibly grateful for. We've talked to several other authors, musicians, people involved in the arts, and one recurring theme with them is is the difficulty these days, in particular in the music industry and in the literature industry, uh, of getting to that point. And they all had different recommendations. I remember one telling us, uh, you know, don't count on it to be your job. Make sure that you have a backup plan. Keep doing what you love. Work on it. But also have a plan B. Have another route that you can go. What would you recommend to the aspiring veteran authors out there? Um, do the work. Uh, I mean, yes, obviously have a day job, stuff like that. But um, but it's really this. Um, it, it's the work. It's nothing else. Um, don't worry about marketing. Don't worry about who you know. Don't worry about any of that. Worry about writing a dynamite book. If you write a fantastic book, it will find a home. Um, and I know people will say, but oh, so much junk gets published and so many good books get passed over. Yeah, that's true. But those are outliers. Outliers. In general, when you write fantastic work, work that truly sings, work that is amazing, you know, publishers are not stupid. They're going to see that and they're going to and they're going to want to buy it because they, they're going to know it, it will make them money. Um, so there's a lot of mystery around being a success in the arts and a lot of alchemy and people trying to figure it out. You know, the right look, the right I have to be at the right place, make the right scene. No, 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 no. It is the quality of the work. Focus on writing an amazing book. When you read your own manuscript and you say, this is as good as anything, you know, George R. R. Martin has ever written. This is as good as anything Naomi Novik has ever written. This is as good as anything Ursula K. Le Guin has ever written. When you feel that, 
Uh, and when your beta readers, your friends who are looking at it for you, feel that, then you're ready to, to start finding an agent. But before that, you focus on craft. And how do you focus on craft? You read the books of the greats, right? And you pick apart what they're doing. You read like a boxer watches a fight video of an opponent. Um, you take writing courses. You um, And most of all, you practice. You sit on your butt in a chair and you write and you write and you write and you read what you wrote, you throw it away and you write. Um, but yeah, craft, 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 craft. That is my number one piece of advice. We're speaking with Mike Cole, a bit of a renaissance man, an author, a TV star, and of course, a Coast Guard veteran having served in the United States Coast Guard until, well, a few years ago, as he told us, and one of the most difficult decisions he's ever made in his life. This most recent series is the Sacred Throne series, book two, The Queen of Crows, coming out this month. Uh, a question for you, Mike, about the literary community. Is there much of a veteran presence in the literature community, or is there you know, a group of veterans that you know of who are writing that you maybe keep in touch with or anything like that? Um, so you have to keep in mind that the literature community isn't monolithic. It's, um, it tends to aggregate by genre. So my community is the science fiction and fantasy community. Um, and there are, there are a few veterans, but very few. Um, and the ones that I know of also tend to congregate on the political right of the... So science fiction and fantasy is itself divided politically. Um, it's an extremely political genre, especially now. Um, and uh, military science fiction in particular tends to aggregate around this one publisher called Bain. And um, I know that uh, one of the writers there, Brad Torgerson, is a chief warrant officer in the U.S. Army uh, as a reservist. Um, and I, I think, oh, Weston Oaks uh, is a, a Navy veteran. Um, he's not from that crowd. Uh, but really, by and large, not too many. Um, I think that Brad Torgerson and myself, um, we don't see eye to eye. He's, he's on, the, on that political uh, right of the spectrum. And, uh, and I was sort of on the political left of the spectrum. Jack Campbell, who is a um, former Navy intelligence officer, uh, is a great military science fiction author, but honestly not nearly enough. And one of the things I um, took a lot of pride in was going to awards ceremonies, World Fantasy Awards, the Nebula Awards, and wearing my Coast Guard dress blues um, and sort of representing the, uh, the military presence there. And it evoked a lot of curiosity, which was cool. And I loved sort of being able to model that citizen, uh, citizen sailor ethic to the community. But the fact that it, there was so much curiosity was a great example that you know not enough um, not enough veterans are doing it. There are lots of cool programs out there. There's things like Got Your Six, and there's veterans networks in the arts everywhere you go. But those tend to be super focused on film and television. They're really not that focused on writing. There's a great program called Words After War, but it's more intended toward um, helping veterans cope with PTSD through writing, and it has an extremely literary bent. I just don't see that much uh, veteran presence um, and veteran presence, like visible veteran presence in the science fiction and fantasy genre. But, you know, you got to give all genres some slack. Less than 1% of Americans, as you know, serve in uniform, in any uniform. Yeah. And uh, that divide is a real problem in the United States. And it's resulted in a lot of um, uh, a lot of problems. Um, you may remember Admiral McMullen's famous speech on the topic. But you have this real fetishization, this exoticization of veterans. I have people who don't know me who found out that I've served or been downrange to Iraq. You know, oh, you're a hero. 
and my response is always like, I mean, I get that they're trying to be nice and, and it's nice of them, but like, um, you know, you don't know me, you don't know what I've done. Um, you know, for all you know, I went down to Iraq and put my feet on a desk. Right. Yeah. And also that label, you're a hero. Well, now you don't have to get to know me at all. Right. You don't have to ask me what I like, what I don't like, who I am. You know, my humanity is sort of erased because there's a stamp on me now, hero and heroes behave this way, but not this way. And it's a really isolating thing. And, uh, and don't get me wrong, I don't get mad at people when they do that. That's, it certainly comes from a good place. But I think that that phenomenon, this worship of veterans, that veterans can do no wrong, veterans are heroes, you know, we, we're made of gold. I really think that comes out of not knowing veterans, right? That comes yeah. out of, you treat people like that when you don't know them. And uh, that comes from this incredible divide that people don't see uniforms the way they used to. My mom told me stories that when veterans flew or went to the theater in public, uh, they would wear their uniforms, you know, uh, and the public sort of was used to seeing that. And now not only do we have this incredible divide where less than 1% are serving, but people don't see uniforms at all unless they're in Grand Central Station in New York City. And then they're seeing National Guardsmen who basically look like cops you know, kind of scowling while they're looking for threats. Mm. So that, that really is something that uh, I'd love to see addressed and I'd love to see, um, and I think if that were to be addressed, you'd see the veteran presence or at least the visible veteran presence spike in all forms of art. It's interesting too, the military itself. I know when I was serving in the Navy, we weren't allowed to wear our uniforms just about anywhere. I mean, it was very restricted on that. So that's an interesting point that you bring up there. We've been speaking with Mike Cole, successful author. Uh, he's been on TV. He was on the show Hunted on CBS, which was a very cool show where uh, teams work to try and uh, basically find people. And some of them, some of them made it a pretty far away. Some of them got caught pretty quickly by the teams working on that. Mike, as we finish up here, what's next for you? I know you've got a book that just came out. You've got book three in that series coming out soon. What's next for Mike Cole? So um, I've got a uh, third book in the Sacred Throne series, The Killing Light, which I am doing my final edits on and should be turning that in to my agent in about 10 days. I have a new series, which is as yet untitled, um, with Angry Robot, which is um, about the future of the Coast Guard. It's about the Coast Guard's mission when the U.S. has colonized the moon. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I have two books under contract there. Um, and then I have, uh, I can't reveal anything, but I have some more TV negotiations going on and I'm really, uh, look with Hollywood, you never know. So I want to <laughs> manage expectations, but, um, I'm hoping that I'll have something to announce in the next few months on that front. That is very cool. And of course, if people are interested in finding your work and finding your books, where should they go to find those and to find out more about you? Um, so my name is easy to find. It's Mike Cole with Y, M-Y-K-E space C-O-L-E. So you can go to my website at MikeCole.com. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at at Mike Cole, M-Y-K-E-C-O-L-E. Friend me on Facebook, uh, Facebook.com forward slash Mike Cole. And uh, like if you go to Barnes & Noble online or Amazon online and put in Mike Cole, you will find my books. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. It's what we do. And how do we do it? Well, we do it through a variety of content, including audio like this very program, The Morning Briefing. We've also got great videos going up on the website. We've got segments like Benefits in My Backyard, focusing on what the VA and the location you live in offers you in your specific neck of the woods. We've got great articles, great videos, great audio, and all of it is available to you at ConnectingVets.com. 
And if you follow us on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is also a former guest. She's been on the show many, many times before. She is the Chief Policy Officer of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, Miss Melissa Bryant. Melissa, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, Eric. How are you? I, you know, I'm still getting over this. Uh, I lost my voice last week, and uh, yeah, it's still not quite fully back. It's getting there. That's it's all right. There. Just more coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have my full voice because we have a whole lot to talk about, including uh, some big stuff and big news when it comes to suicide. The most recent VA numbers are out. Of course, they show that while the overall number of suicides are down, which you might think is good, that has more to do with the fact that there are fewer veterans each and every day because of the World War II and Korea veterans leaving us uh, at a fairly high rate. The the upsetting and disturbing aspect of that report, I think, is that the suicide rate among younger veterans, age 24 to 55, is actually up. It's higher than That's it was. Right. The other disturbing thing about this, this report is from 2015, I believe. That's the most, 2016. 2016. Yeah. So two-year-old data is the most recent data that we have. What did the team at IAVA think when you saw this new report come out? Well, when we first saw this report, um, you know, we had the opportunity to speak with the VA, to speak with their Office of Suicide Prevention. And Steph, numbers are her jam. Mullen, our research director, um, immediately delved into it. And that was the big takeaway that we saw. They kind of buried the lead there in that the rate of suicide for our brothers and sisters from Iraq and Afghanistan is much higher than we previously anticipated. So much so that we're not even looking at 20 veteran suicides by day because that's Effect, <clears throat> excuse me, not really a great uh, measurement of what's happening. They're more looking at it per 100,000. And so what we're finding are 45 suicides per 100,000. And um, as also as a part of that information, we're also recognizing that what are we doing that's getting to this problem? Because we've made some huge strides in like legislation, like the Clay Hunt Save Act that IAVA championed back in 2014. And we see tons of programs and outreach, both on the government and the nonprofit side. But what are we doing to really help those of us who are coming home and still struggling? And with the two-year lag in information, it really begs the question of, have we been making progress since then? The jury's out. And so- It's hard to say. It's hard to say. And also, we can look at the fact that two years ago, there was already a lot of work being done to combat this issue. The 22-a-day number came out long before 2016. So clearly, what we have been doing uh, wasn't working two years ago. It would surprise me if all of a sudden something changed in 2017 and 18, because a lot of the same things have been going on. Do you think that's part of the problem? Do you think that we need to maybe reassess how we're attacking this problem? I think we need to reassess how we're attacking the problem. I think it's going to be obviously a multi-pronged solution. It's not going to be one size fits all. What works for my father's generation of Vietnam veterans who still are the largest generation that are dying by suicide, but that's by pure number, uh, by pure volume. Um, but what works for them won't work for us. And so, you know, we're a younger generation where we have many new challenges to include family, transition, financial instability, a whole host of things that just don't apply to the older generation. And so um, this week, IAVA, we're going to call attention to the suicide data, you know, in the backdrop of everything happening in the country right now. We want people to remember that 
we are still a vulnerable population in that regard. We're doing a lot to bring each other up, but there's still more that we can do. And so we have a big activation coming up this Wednesday. It's going to be on the National Mall by the east side of the Washington Monument. We will be planting 5,500 plus flags for each one of the veterans who has died by suicide this year to date. 5,500. That's how many have died by suicide this year to date. So we'll be out there Wednesday morning. We'll be there from, if you come join us around 9 o'clock to 12, there'll be a press conference at 12 o'clock. But right on the east side of the National Monument, that's where we'll be. When we talk about bringing attention to the issue, that's a good thing, to make more people aware of it. I think those of us in the veteran community, like myself and yourself, we're already extremely aware of this. And that's kind of what makes it troubling to me to see that rate still going up despite all the amazing work that I know people are doing to try and get it to go down. What is the next step? I mean, we, we can say reassess and we look at this. What do we do first? What's the first step that you think we need to take? Well, the first step occurred actually earlier this year, and that was fully funding the Clay Hunt Save Act. Um, that piece of legislation had languished a bit in Congress. It wasn't really being fully implemented by the VA. Um, they didn't have the funding for it at the time. And so it took three years from that point for them to finally fully fund the Clay Hunt Save Act and to implement the provisions under there where it provides for uh, incentives, for example, for mental health care professionals to come to the VA. Oh, another problem that we just have, and this is a countrywide problem, not just unique to the VA and to veterans, is that there's just not enough mental health care professionals in the country to serve our at-risk population. And so I don't know how we get to that outside of further incentivizing people to go into that profession and to help one another. And there's also the other side of that. Even if we did have enough mental health professionals, getting people to reach out exactly. and actually seek them out. I mean, if exactly. you have... Uh, if you have a cut on your arm and you never put a Band-Aid on it, well, yeah, it may scab up on its own or it may just keep bleeding depending yeah. on what kind of cut it is. Uh, it's 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 a difficult topic. It's one of the most important, if not the most important, that we face. I'm glad to see all the great work that's going on in it. But then when you see these numbers, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 2017 and 2018, when those reports come out a year and two years from now, Sadly. we'll see some better uh, numbers. But until then, we can't know. When it comes to that delay, this two-year delay on the numbers, is that something that you think can be addressed? I mean, why is it taking them two years to get numbers over to Steph Mullen to be able to crunch them? It's simply because of the data gathering and uh, analysis process that goes on between CDC and the DOD and VA reporting. I won't get into all the technical bits about it. I'll let Steph delve into that next time she's all here. Right. But um, what I will say is that it is something that they are at least trying to address because 2015 came out earlier this year. Now we have 2016. And so the VA does recognize that the lag in information is a critical gap in our ability to address the problem. It just it's one of those things, you know, from my perspective, when the VA is telling us that they're going to make seamless record transitions from active duty military to the veteran community. I, you know, when you can't get the suicide data out for two years, yeah. I mean, are, are you having to go back and double check everything? I, I don't understand. And from the uh, the uninitiated's point of view, I think that's what a lot of people are looking at going, why two years? Shouldn't you have a program where people can enter in? Hey, here's a suicide. Here's another one. Here's yep. another one. And it just goes to a database. I mean, there are plenty of uh, companies that are able to do that with, with, with private hospitals. And mm -hmm. the privatization issue is one that a lot of people talk about. You're not going to hear the the data from two years ago from them. You're going to get the most recent data. It's right. gonna 
kind of upsetting. Is it? Is it mostly just because this is a federal organization? That's it's a just federal organization, and I mean, things move at a glacial pace in government, and I think that that's really just the bottom line, is that uh, that they're trying to do you know the best that they can with the tools that they have, but as you bring up electronic health care records, I mean, that's something that's also been 10 years in the works, oh God, yeah. and it's going to take another 10 years for its full implementation, and so uh, it's just something where they're moving at this pace of government, and this is where nonprofits like IAVA and others come in to fill in those gaps while we're still waiting for a government response. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant. Melissa is chief policy officer at IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. As she just told us, they're having a big activation this Wednesday, October 3rd, on the mall. They're going to be placing flags around the Washington Monument, east of the Washington Monument, I should say, for the uh, 5,500 veterans who've died by suicide this year. Of course, you're going to have some extra people in town to be able to help out with what will be a somber event because you're having uh, a little bit more of a, uh, well, parts of it will be happy, parts of it will be a lot about business. IAVA Storm the Hill event is taking place, correct? That's right. This is our fall Storm the Hill. We started doing them quarterly in 2018 because we had our big six priorities, which we've been on this program before and talked about suicide uh, prevention being our number one priority. And so because we had these six priorities, we couldn't fit it all into one Storm the Hill like we used to do. So we decided to spread it out across the year. And in advance of the elections, we felt it was really important for people to still see, not just on the Hill, but for the administration and for uh, the public to really still understand the issues that veterans face. So it's not just about suicide. We'll still come, uh, call attention to our uh, campaign against uh, injuries for, excuse me, to support those who have suffered injuries from burn pits and toxic exposure. We'll still be out there to um, ask for VA to research cannabis and its particular benefits, uh, if it will benefit our population. We'll still be out there talking about women veterans, uh, especially in the backdrop of what's happening with uh, Judge Kavanaugh. And the, I'm not going to go into the hearings and the political aspect, but if there is any silver lining to come out of this is that it brings attention to military sexual trauma, military sexual assault. We just saw the recent Pentagon report that came out that talked about, well, depending on service, how much or how little you could have been exposed to, uh, or rather there's a propensity for military sexual assault. So there's still a lot of things that we need to call attention to. And so our stormers fly in from across the country, from many different states. We have over a dozen who are coming in this week to let everyone know that we are here and we demand of our lawmakers to talk to us about what they plan to do for our veteran population in advance of the elections. Who is it that takes part in this Storm the Hill? I know it's not just the D.C. office of mm-hmm. IAVA. I mean, you, Steph, and Tom, you guys are storming the hill every day of the week. So who's going to be storming the hill for IAVA? We are bringing in a lot of folks. So we're bringing in folks like Ryan Conklin, for example, who some of you may remember if you're as old as I am from the real world. Um, they did a whole <laughs> special around him when he was returning to Iraq. Uh, several years back. And so he's flying in. I have a lovely woman named uh, Corey Foster who's coming in, who's a mom, who's an army vet. And, uh, you know, she's coming back for her second time. Julie Howells, another one who actually interned with IVA, love it so much that she keeps coming back to Storm the Hill with us because she found her passion in policy and is now pursuing her master's in public policy out in California. So we're, we're bringing in really talented people who have either found their calling in advocacy or at least want to do it part-time, but they've at least found a way in which they would love to give back to our community. And so if you go to stormthehill.org, stormthehill.org, and you go uh, to a tab that says Stormers, you can see the bios of all of the great people who are coming out with us this week. 
What do you think the biggest takeaway is for those who do come down and take part in a Storm the Hill event? I mean, IAVA does it. The other VSOs also have uh, similar events that they do. Why do you think it's important for the membership of organizations like your own to come down to D.C. and actually uh, uh, do their thing down here? Well, what we realized a couple of years ago, in fact, was that our membership is fueled by advocacy. We found that their passion, because maybe it's because we're younger, maybe it's because we're more politically engaged, but they were really hungry for those types of opportunities. And so we wanted to step up those opportunities and not just here in D.C., but we also have local activations back in district. And so what we do is we train you here in the D.C. office. But when you go back home, you're setting up meetings with your congressmen, uh, with your senators, and you're going back and you're talking to them about the issues. And it uh, pays dividends. I mean, we always see results from that because of meetings that our stormers will have here in D.C. and then take those tools back with them to their districts. We then see co-sponsors added to our bills. And if you want the Burn Pits Accountability Act to pass, if you want the Deborah Sampson Act to pass, if you want to see uh, the Clay Hunt uh, Save Act strengthened and implemented uh, even further, then that's what you have to do is you have to tell your representatives and senators. Let's look at it from the opposite perspective. What do you think the politicians, officials, and all the D.C. folks, what do you think they take away from seeing members of, of an organization like IAVA show up at their doors and, and bring the issues directly to them? It truly is a positive experience. Uh, we we prioritize in meeting with uh, post-9-11 veterans, veterans of all eras, and then meeting with civilians who have no military experience whatsoever. And I'd have to say it's probably the latter category that maybe comes back with the most, um, uh, let's call it positive experience. I mean, not that others don't think it's positive, but more so in the sense that they just don't know. They just don't know the good and the bad about what happens. Sometimes they only know the broken vet narrative, which we're all too familiar with. Um, And so they're encouraged to see this group of young, bright and invigorated and inspiring uh, veterans who come back and share their stories. And they're truly moved by it. And I've sat in meetings with members of Congress when they're listening to the stories of someone talking about their uh, exposure to burn pits and how it's later had health impacts on them. And they're you can watch their the the gears turning and and how they're really understanding of what the problem is. And so um, that's what their takeaway is. And even for the public, for those who may be walking by the mall or out there on Wednesday, we're never going to have gawkers who will walk up and say, what are you doing? When we've done this type of activation in the past, they generally come up and say, may I plant a flag? May I be a part of this too? And so that's how you galvanize a movement is to share the stories, to show that passion. And most people kind of really take to that. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for IAVA. Do you think that people being able to come down through a Storm the Hill event or something like it kind of humanizes D.C. in a way? Because this city, and I only work here, I don't live here, (laughs) thank goodness, it's got this reputation of just being, you know, cold and the politicians, they're barely real people. Do you think that being able to see it and being able to meet people like members of Congress and, and people from the VA, do you think that that kind of humanizes it and opens it up and allows for a better understanding in both directions? It absolutely does. I mean, look, again, I'm not going to go into the politics of the Kavanaugh hearings, but I think everyone by now, you know, over the weekend has seen uh, Senator Jeff Flake in the elevator with the with the woman activist who shared her story. Right, right. And so regardless of where you sit on, you know, either side of this, it got through to him. He admitted to that on 60 Minutes last night. It got through to him. And so in talking about humanizing and sharing stories, this is what we say in advocacy as well. And that is for our veterans to share those stories with members of Congress or members of Congress to look them in the eye and say, I care about you. I care about your population. 
that is a very meaningful and very impactful connection that pays dividends because then that's when you see laws get passed and signed into law and that's when you start to see movement. When we talk about movement, oftentimes we talk about the VA. Sometimes there's movement, sometimes there's a frustrating lack of it. Secretary Wilkie's been in for, I believe, two months or so at this point. He's been in there for a little while. Mm -hmm. What's the latest that you're hearing out of the VA and what he's trying to do over there? And and how happy are you or unhappy are you with what he's done so far? I think so far he's really done a great job of calming things down. And that was his number one objective. He's, He's been very frank about that, is that after the first half of this year and all the tumult that happened in the VA, his primary objective was to just calm things down to get any bad actors out of the building um, and to ensure that they're able to do their mission with the people and staff who are motivated to do so. And people who are not motivated by partisan politics or other types of interests. And so that was really his main objective. And I think he's done a good job of doing that. Uh, I was just over at the VA on Friday for a roundtable and I could really see how they were open and transparent and wanting to create a dialogue with the VSOs and really wanting to ensure that they're gaining our feedback on behalf of the veteran population so that they can know how to do better. The VSOs, including IAVA, were a bit concerned during the search for a new secretary of the VA that they weren't contacted. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about whether the the newer VSOs like IAVA or the ones like the Legion that have been around for 100 years. That being said, it's all done now that you can't go back and change that. Do you think he's the right guy for the job? Are you happy with who they chose, or is it still too early to say? I think it's still too early to say, but last week on the Hill, uh, he testified before the Senate uh, VA committee, and uh, it was actually Senator Tester who said, you know, I want you to succeed, man, but the honeymoon's over. You know, unfortunately, we've been through too much. And you mentioned, you know, from IAVA to the Legion, it's been around literally for 100 years. Um We've been through it all. We've seen it all. And so there's not a whole lot of appetite for any lag time, unlike our suicide numbers data. But there's no room for error here. And I think that he gets that. I think that he is sincere. Um, I think that he generally really wants to do this job, do it methodically and do it in partnership with not just the VSOs, but across whole of government, because he also mentions a lot of whole of government approaches to things like the opioid crisis, for example. So I know that he's heartfelt in what he wants to do for the VA. And that much I can at least say. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, that's something that you want. And considering that he is uh, a veteran himself, actually still serving in the reserve, still serving in the reserve. Yes. And then, but I think more core to his beliefs or more central to his core beliefs, I should say, is his family. He talks a lot about his father, who is a disabled veteran from Vietnam. Um, I talk often about my father from Vietnam, um, who was also disabled. And so I, I can recognize that's where I feel the, uh, where he and I are a bit simpatico. And I can understand his genuine concern to want to do right by the VA and by our population. And there is, you know, there was talk about trying to find the perfect person to head the VA, someone who had executive experience mm-hmm. as well as medical experience as well as military experience there's maybe a handful of those in the entire country if if any at all the one thing that he doesn't have is the medical experience right that though i don't think necessarily is going to be too much of a drawback for him or too much uh, of a drag on him because he does have the executive experience in specifically in the federal manner he knows how the government works Absolutely. he's been doing that for a while and the military experience so it'll be interesting to see how things go over there because as you said 
We've seen it all before, and not only that, we've seen it for a long time. We've seen the same things happening over and over again. Look at burn pits now. Look at the the Blue Water Navy Agent Orange exactly. issue with the VA. Go back further and look at the original issues with Agent Orange before everybody boots on the ground over there even got their coverage. It's history repeating itself. Absolutely. There are veterans who were exposed in World War II to mustard gas who were just receiving yep. benefits. World so, War II, I mean, yeah. World War One. I. I mean, those guys. Mm-hmm. I was just watching a movie uh, this 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 past weekend. I watched a movie uh, about World War One, and it just the fact that. A lot has changed in 100 years. The fact that some things have stayed the same, particularly for military veterans, is a little bit frustrating. Uh, But one of the things that has certainly changed is IAVA has come into being, and they have their Storm the Hill event taking place this week. They're also going to be doing, uh, you know, the planting of the flags to the east of the Washington Monument. It's going to be at 14th Street if you're in Washington, D.C. on October 3rd. That's uh, Wednesday, right? That's Can you Wednesday. believe it's October already? I know, but it's like 75 degrees outside already. <laughs> yeah. Well, last year it was pretty warm up until like January. Like yeah. Christmas time, it started getting cold, and then January it was negative 24 a bunch <laughs> of weeks. But that's that's more about this local area. Let's talk about IVA for our last couple of minutes here. Of course, a national program that's open to all veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. And if someone wants to find out more, if someone walks up to you and says, hey, you're that Melissa Bryant from IAVA, what's that? organization all about? What do you tell them? I tell them that we are the foremost veterans empowerment organization for the post 9-11 generation. And since our post 9-11 generation is now 17 years strong, that means that there's still a lot more that we need to do for both currently serving, reserve, guard, and those who are veterans. We have an entire statistical generation, nearly 20 years of people who have served. And what we recognize now is that we're going to continue to evolve as the wars have evolved and that you have people who are serving children who are serving on the same battlegrounds that their mothers and fathers served on. Mm. Sometimes at the same time now. I recently saw a story of uh, a parent and their child who both deployed at the same time. Absolutely. It's it's kind of fascinating that that's going on. This war now, uh, I mean, consider the fact... World War II, four years. Mm-hmm. World War One, the U.S. was only in it for one year. Vietnam, right. far less than the 17 we're at now. It is a certainly a fascinating uh, a period of time to be alive and fascinating to see all of the good things that the VSOs, including IAVA, are doing out there. One of the differences, though, that always sticks out to me for IAVA is you guys are free membership. We People are. don't have to, you know, they're 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 not paying to be members of IAVA. Of course, IAVA doesn't have the the posts like the VFW post has been there for seventy five years. So there are some differences there. What do you think are the benefits to having a, a free open membership like that? Uh, it's Big Ten. It ensures that those who need the help, if you're calling into our rapid response referral program, for example, and you need to talk to one of our master's level social workers uh, who is a veteran transition manager to help you with all things, whether it's financial insecurity, benefits, navigation, things such as that, they can help you. And that's for veterans of all eras. And that's for your families, too, if you want to call on behalf of someone. Um, it's Big Ten in the sense that we bring in active guard, reserve and veteran we're open to all, we're diverse, we're young, and we also want to ensure that we're reaching out to the widest population as possible. And so we're all over social media uh, in addition to traditional media. And so if you look up IVA on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, then you will see what we do. You'll see everything that we're doing if you're not in the local area this week. But if you are, I highly encourage you to come join us on the mall by 14th Street over by the Washington Monument on Wednesday morning. 
That's Wednesday, October 3rd in Washington, D.C., east of the Washington Monument at 14th Street. A big activation for IAVA. Of course, they've got their members storming the hill this week as well. Busy week for them. So I want to thank Melissa for taking some time out of her busy schedule <laughs> as Chief Policy Officer to join us here on the morning briefing. And that just about does it for today's show. We want to thank author... Mike Cole, as well as television star and Coast Guard veterans. He's, he's a bit of a renaissance man out there. want to thank him for coming on. Again, you can go to Mike Cole. That's M-Y-K-E Cole.com. You can also look him up on social media. And, of course, Melissa Bryant from IAVA. Coming up tomorrow, we are scheduled to have Hill Vets in the house. And we're going to talk to a man who's got, like, I don't know, a couple million social media followers in John Burke. Another TV star, American Grit with John Cena. Yeah, he was on that show. And yeah, he's kind of the quintessential veteran yelling at a camera inside of his car. Did you know now, though, that he has a nonprofit that he started on his own that's trying to help veterans through video gaming? Yeah, he has. And we're going to talk to him about it tomorrow. All that's coming up on the morning briefing. Hope you have a great day. Stay safe. We'll see you bright and early for the Tuesday show. See you. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.